Good morning, church family and friends who might be watching this morning. We're really eager and excited to start meeting together as a church family in person again. And so in the next couple of days, we're going to get uh, out some information to you all about what that's going to look like and the time frame and kind of the, um, the plan for what that's going to be. But this morning, we want to jump into our message in Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. Solomon has been sharing with us all of the ways that he's attempted to find purpose and meaning in life. And he's been revealing what that pursuit ultimately leads to. Vanity, meaningless, vapor, he says, self-indulgence, wisdom, work. These things in Solomon's mind and experience, they lead to frustration in and of themselves. They bring, as we talked about the dad walking through the minefield of his kid's playroom last week, they bring pain and they bring heartache and worry and toil. They don't usually bring fulfillment and they never bring peace. These things alone don't satisfy us because we were created to pursue God above any of those things above anything else in all of life. And when we are finally satisfied in him through Jesus Christ, it's only then that we're able to enjoy, really truly enjoy what happens in this life now. And so the first eight verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 is an often quoted poem that you've probably heard before. But as I read this poem and I considered the context of everything that Solomon has been saying up to this point, I can't really figure out if it's a poem designed to encourage us as readers or one that's more intended to force us to face the harsh realities of this life on the earth under the sun, as Solomon puts it. And so I want to read Ecclesiastes chapter 3, the first 15 verses, and then say a word of prayer together before we continue. So grab your Bible and turn to Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 1. I'll be reading out of the English Standard Version this morning. For everything there is a season, and a time for every matter under heaven. A time to be born, and a time to die. A time to plant, and a time to pluck up what is planted. A time to kill, and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to seek and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to cast away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate. A time for war and a time for peace. What gain has the worker from his toil? I've seen the business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. He has made everything beautiful in its time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. I perceive that there is nothing better for them than to be joyful and to do good as long as they live. Also, that everyone should eat and drink and take pleasure in all his toil. This is God's gift to man. I perceive that whatever God does endures forever. Nothing can be added to it, nor anything taken from it. God has done it so that his people fear him. That which is has already been. That which is to be already has been. And God seeks what has been driven away. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord, it's our heart's desire today to really hear from you. 
We pray, Jesus, that you would enlighten our hearts as we think about temporal things that are only here on this earth and then also eternal things that last forever. Help us to know the importance, the difference, and the weight that each one carries and how we should respond to these thoughts about time today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, I'm not sure when it happens in life, but at some point, you start viewing time differently. And it seems no matter what age you are, no matter what stage of life you are, we tend to get frustrated with time. Now, when you're younger, time seems to be frustrating to us because it just moves so slowly Time just moves slowly. My kids cannot wait to be old enough and big enough to not have to ride in the car with a booster seat. It's a milestone for them. They can't wait to be big enough and tall enough to ride certain rides at Six Flags. I don't know if you remember being a kid, adults, but for kids, the time between Christmas and Christmas is an eternity. It feels like it takes forever Now, some of you young people, you just can't wait to be old enough to get your driver's license. Or maybe you've got your driver's license and now you just can't wait to be old enough to be finished with school. And then to be kind of striking out on your own. All the waiting is frustrating to you because you just wish that time would go by faster. But everybody reaches the point in life, and again, I'm not sure when this point sets in for everyone, but we all get to the point when time is frustrating because it moves too quickly. So for some parents, you're sitting there this morning and you can identify with this and you say, wow, it feels like it was just yesterday that my kid wanted to hold my hand or sit close and snuggle to me on the couch while we were watching a movie. But now they're teenagers and they wouldn't be caught dead holding your hand, much less sitting close to you on the couch. As, as we get older, it seems like Christmas, it's not an eternity in between Christmases anymore. It seems like Christmas sneaks up on us earlier and earlier. And we think, how can it be winter again? It was just winter a month ago, it seems. The things that we once could do as a young person without stretching or warming up at all. Now we do those same things and we pay for it for like a week afterwards. Time just seems to be slipping away. We see it and we feel it. And yet there's nothing we can do about it. And the speed of time for many of us is now frustrating because we just wish it would slow down. So time is a common theme throughout literature and throughout entertainment in general. Think about all the movies and novels that have been made and written about time, about going forward in time, or about going back in time to change the past, or just about controlling time in general. Think about how many of our common sayings refer to time. Wow, how time flies, or time is money, or well, there aren't enough hours in the day. Or, here's a common one, where did the time go? So time frustrates many of us, probably every one of us, it's true. But what do we do about that? How do we respond to the issue of time? 
Well, during our stay-at-home, shelter-at-home season here, I've subjected my wife to watching the Lord of the Rings trilogy. They're long movies. Uh, But in the first movie, The Fellowship of the Ring, Frodo, who's kind of the main character, is talking to Gandalf the Wizard. And he's lamenting the fact that his friends and him are hurting, and some of his friends are even dying, and that there's so much trouble around this little ring And he wishes that he didn't have to deal with it at all. And so he says this in the movie and in the novel. He says, I wish it need not have happened in my time. So do I, said Gandalf, and so do all who live to see such times. But that's not for them to decide. All we have to decide is what to do with the time given us. I think that's kind of what Solomon is getting at here in Ecclesiastes 3 as well. And he talks about time in the context of seasons, really. There's a season for everything. There's a time for everything. The truth is, we don't get to decide the number of the days that we get here on earth or anyone else's number of days. And we don't even get to decide what happens during those days of our lives. But you do get to choose how you spend them. In his poem, Solomon gives us 14 positive things and 14 negative things. So he starts off and he says, it's the time to be born and the time to die. Positive and negative, and there's 14 of each. So kids, let me just ask you a math question this morning, since I'm sure you're not sick of math at home at this point. What do you get when you add positive 14 and negative 14? You get zero. They cancel each other out. Have you ever felt this way? Have you ever felt like no matter what you did, you come away frustrated because it just doesn't seem to matter in the end? We reach for meaning in all of our activities, but a lot of times we seem to just come away frustrated. And there's a point, I think, that Solomon is getting to with all of this. And in his poem... He mentions the reality of what life encompasses here on this earth, both good and bad. And he doesn't even expound or explain these things at all, really. He just lists them like these are the facts of life. Now, most of these things are pretty self-explanatory. Uh, and so we're not going to go through them point by point. But I do want to point out and make a few comments on, a, on several of them just for clarification. The first one is in verse 3, the first part of verse 3, a time to kill and a time to heal. There are different words in the Hebrew for kill and for murder. So murder is the word that's used in Exodus chapter 20 in the Ten Commandments. Commandment number six is do not murder. Now the word used here in the Hebrew is rasah, and it means premeditated and intentional, and it always refers to the killing of a person. And so God through Moses says, do not murder. Kill, which is the word that's used here in verse three, is the Hebrew word harag. And it means to kill or to slay, but it doesn't mean to murder. It's not always, it's not premeditated and it's not violent in that sense. So if this is referring to human death, I think it would be wise for us to understand these things as the difference between preordained murder and something more like corporal punishment. Justice is the motivation when giving out the death penalty, and this would be considered an appropriate time for someone to be killed in that way. 
Romans 13 verses 1 through 4 make it pretty clear that the governing authorities over us are number one ordained by God and number two have been given the authority to do this as a way to render justice to the nations. Uh, Verse 4 of Romans chapter 13 says that they do not bear the sword in vain and we should take this seriously as believers. But death by murder is not appropriate at any point because it's always an act of injustice. So I think there's another context that we could look at this in, too. If you look back, kind of look back in Ecclesiastes 3, verse 2, right before this, what's going on here? What's the context of verse 2? Verse 2 says, in the second part, B, it says, a time to plant and a time to pluck up what is planted. What's that talking about? It's talking about farming. It's talking about agriculture. And so if you know a farmer or if you are a farmer, specifically to animals, every animal farmer knows that there's a time to take that wounded animal and and mend its leg, to heal its leg. But then there's also times when you just have to put the animal down. There's a time to kill that animal. Time to kill and a time to heal. Now move on to verse 3b, the second part of that verse. It says a time to break down and a time to build up. This one's a little simpler, if, especially if you've watched any amount of HGTV, right? Because even if you've watched just a few episodes of pretty much any show there, you're going to understand that there are houses that can be rehabilitated to their formal, former glory. But then there are also houses that can't be, and they just have to be demolished torn down in order for something new to be built up. And so Solomon says a time to break down and a time to build up. There's a season for both of those things. Moving on to verse five, the first part of verse five, a, it says a time to cast stones and a time to gather stones. I don't think this is referring to judging someone like, well, who are you to cast the first stone kind of a thing? I don't think it's in, used in that sense. In Old Testament times, armies would actually throw stones into the field of enemy territories in order to disrupt their, their farming or to disrupt their agriculture. And we actually see this in Second Kings chapter 3. The Israelite army was pushing back the Moabite army, and in doing that, It says each man, they covered the fields with stones. And not only that, they stopped up the wells of the enemy. So this was a military tactic. And so what the author here is saying is that there's a time to let those things go and deal with them later because there's more important things to deal with. If an an enemy army is traveling across your fields, disrupting your agriculture, that's a big deal, but you're probably more concerned about the oncoming attack than you are about the stones in your field. And so there's a time to deal with those. And then there's also a time to then reclaim that ground for growing crops again in the future. In fact, Isaiah five talks about this very thing. He talks about digging out and gathering stones in order to reclaim that ground to plant a vineyard. So there's a time to cast stones and there's also a time to gather stones. Next in verse five, it says a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. I don't think that this is talking about social distancing rules in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, I think that this is this means that there are times when you greet your friend with a hug. 
you're in good relationship, you go up and you, you love on them and you give them the greeting of a close friend. But then there are also situations when you need to forego a close friendship hug because you have to say some hard things to your friend and you're probably not going to greet them with a hug in that moment. There are also situations when you need to just completely sever a relationship with someone and you're not going to extend the greeting of a friend anymore. And this is really a hard part of life that Solomon points out here in verse five. So there's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. And move on to verse seven, the first part of verse seven. It says a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to mend. This was the custom, you probably remember in Old Testament times when someone received bad news, they would, they would tear their garment, they would rip apart their clothing, and they would mourn. But when the time of mourning was over, they would take needle and thread and they would mend that garment. They would sew it back up. There was a time to tear and there was a time to sew. In verse eight, the first part of verse 8 says that there's a time to love and a time to hate. Now, this can be confusing because we're told not to hate people. We're told to love people, even love our enemies, Jesus says. And think back to something else that Jesus said in, in Luke chapter 14. He's talking about people that would follow him as disciples. And he says, he says unless someone hates their family, even his own life, they cannot be my disciple, Jesus says. So, does this mean that Christians are supposed to hate their families? No, because there's plenty of other New Testament scriptures and Old Testament scriptures that talk about uh, how Christians are supposed to support their families and care for their families. So what does this mean? Well, I think Jesus is using this as a teaching tool of comparison. That's what he's saying when he says somebody has to hate their family in order to follow him. It's a comparison. So what he means is that if a man or a woman was going to follow him and be his devoted disciple, that person was going to have to love him, Jesus, so much that it made the love that he had for his uh, wife, husband, father, mother, son, daughter, the love that they had for them in comparison to the love they had for Jesus was supposed to look like hate supposed to look his their love for jesus was supposed to be so much greater than the love for everyone else they would appear as hate so it's an instruction about the kind of devotion that a follower of jesus was going to have to have in order to follow him so if your life is only about getting ahead or if only if it's only about making a name for yourself or any of the other commonplace things that Solomon mentions in the first uh, eight verses here in this poem. If that's all your life is about, you're going to be frustrated and you're going to be disillusioned about what your purpose is here on earth. Now, we don't want that for you. There's a scene in the latest Jurassic World movie where there's a nerdy scientist and he is running from a carnivorous dinosaur, um, which is how most of those movies end up, uh, it seems. But he's running from these dinosaurs and he says, why am I here? All he's there to do is to deal with the tech side of things, the computers and the systems and all of that. And, you know, wouldn't you know it, he starts getting chased by a real life dinosaur. He says, why am I here? Now, my wife and I laugh about this because when our household is getting loud and tensions are rising, we kind of look at each other and to break that tension, we say, why am I even here? And we have a good laugh about it. But I do suspect that there are people 
probably a lot of people who get caught up in the flow of life, sometimes the monotony of life, and at some crossroads, maybe it's a death, maybe it's a sickness, maybe it's a loss of something, a job or a person, and they, they come to these crossroads and they take a step back and they evaluate things and they ask themselves that very question, why am I even here? What is even the point to this, to me? And it's tempting, as Solomon did, we saw last week, as Solomon was just sinking into despair and hating life. He says he hated his life. Or it's tempting to slip into depression, thinking that there's no way to break this cycle, to get out of the rut of the business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with, as Solomon says in verse 10 here of chapter 3. So what Solomon says here is completely true. Life is full of seasons that have their place. But the timing of the seasons and the timing of our activities are important. They matter. Think about it this way. It's it's appropriate to mourn at a funeral and to dance at a wedding, but not the other way around. So there's a right time for everything that happens in life. And so then Solomon puts all of these into this poem, and then we come to verse 11. This is a memorable memorable verse that's just ripe with meaning. And in respect to timing, we learn that the proper activity in the right time is a beautiful part of God's divine plan. So if you look behind or underneath a tapestry, you would think that, that it was a child's creation rather than a master weaver. Because there are knots, there are loose ends, there are frayed strings. It's kind of a mess if you look on the underside or the backside of a tapestry. The back, it kind of looks like it could be something, kind of like a picture maybe, but it's very choppy and it's very chaotic and it lacks any kind of detail. But you know what? The maker of the tapestry has a specific purpose for the placement of each one of those threads. And if you view it from the right perspective, it can be breathtaking to behold. So the difference between whether you see a mess or whether you see something beautiful is your perspective. God makes everything beautiful in its time. When life is going well, and things are pretty much as you expect, we can really identify with this phrase of he has made everything beautiful in his time. But when life is kind of upside down and there's bills that are needing to be paid and you don't have anything left or your children are out of control and you don't know what to do or if your loved one is dying and you can't do anything to help them. When life isn't going as expected, this probably isn't a verse that you're going to share on Facebook or write on your mirror to see in the morning. In fact, if if our life is turned upside down, we probably pick something more like Psalm chapter 3, verse 7, and ask God to punch our enemies in the face and knock out their teeth. Or we might choose a passage from like Psalm 88, verses 6 and 7. And it says this, You've put me in the depths of the pit, in the regions dark and deep. Your wrath lies heavy upon me, and you overwhelm me with all of your waves. There are seasons of life where we feel this more deeply than anything. 
Maybe you even feel that right now in your life. Maybe that's the season that you're in. But I think verse 11 of Ecclesiastes chapter 3 and the idea of beauty is more real to us in the hard moments of life than we realize. When you believe that God does indeed make everything beautiful in its time, when you can look up from the pit, from the regions dark and deep, as David put it in Psalm 88, and you can know that what you're experiencing is in fact just a season, there's light then in that darkness. There's hope down there in the depths of the pit with you. There's a time for mourning, and there is a time for weeping, Solomon says. But you know what? There's also a time for laughter, and there's a time for dancing. And God has allotted a time for all of these things in your life, but none of them remain forever. No matter how much we want to hang on to those wonderful seasons, they don't remain forever. It's just but a season. One day, even though you may not be able to see it or believe it right now, you may look back at some of these seasons and see beauty there. You may be able to look back and see that something positive may come from the pit after all. But you know what? You're not God. And I'm not God. And because of that, we don't know what he's doing in all of these seasons that we're in. And this is what Solomon explains next in verse 11. He says that he has put eternity into man's heart, yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. Let's start with that phrase that he has put eternity into man's heart. And he's done this, I believe, to definitively reveal that there is more to this life than just what we find under the sun here on this earth. There's more than just what we experience in this life. And if all we do is live for what's here and now, for what this life is all about, then I'm afraid that we're wasting our time and we're not living as we should. Because according to God's sovereign design, everything that happens to you perfectly fits its own place and its own time in your life. He appoints the events of our lives as part of a much bigger, much wiser, but hidden plan. It's kind of like weaving a tapestry. But for most of us, there's a power struggle going on under the surface as God is doing his weaving, isn't there? Every time my family goes into town, especially right now because it's less frequently, but every time our family goes and leaves the house together, At least one of my kids wants to know, what is the plan? Okay, where are we going? How many stops are we going to take? What are we going to get when we make those stops? Uh, How long is it going to take? They want details so that they can make sure that the plan is acceptable and lines up with what they want. And sometimes they only want to know the details of the plan so that they can try to control the plan. Maybe this might sound familiar. Uh, A child will say to me, are we going to go into Troy today? Because, you know, there's a Dairy Queen there. Mm. See, a lot of times I think we behave the same way with the Lord. And we want to know God's plan to make sure it lines up with what we want. We want to try and control the plan. And I think about God's conversation with Job. In Job 38 here. And I'm going to put myself in this conversation this morning. You do the same thing. You put your name in 
In Job 38, God says some of these things to Job. He says, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth, Rod? Who determined its measurements? Well, surely Rod knows. Who stretched the line upon it? Has Rod comprehended the expanse of the earth? Can Rod lift up his voice to the clouds that a flood of waters may cover him? Can Rod send forth lightnings that they may go and say to him, here we are. When we compare our understanding to the all-wise God of creation, hopefully we are put back in our place. It says that he put eternity into man's heart. Not so that we would know everything as God knows, but that we would be driven to trust him and his good plan more. There's a limit to our understanding. And Ecclesiastes is exposing that reality in order to drive us to further faith in God. See, we don't control the creator God and the seasons of life are designed by him to help us trust his faithfulness more and more. Because seasons come and seasons go. You might be in the midst of a really difficult season right now. But I bet if you thought hard enough, you could remember a good one. God's faithfulness endures. And the changing of seasons and the contrasting events of life that Solomon talks about here, they're all evidences of that. Time marches on. And our lives are always changing. But God remains unchanged. Verses 14 and 15 of Ecclesiastes 3, they reinforce this truth that God doesn't waver. Whatever he does lasts forever. So Solomon's purpose from the start of all of this, I think, has been to expose the foolishness of a life lived without God. And he does this in order to push us to enjoy God and his good gifts in the proper place. He states this in verses 12 and 13. For God's people, Solomon says, that there is nothing better than to be joyful and do good as long as you live. So God's gift to us is doing good to others and enjoying this life, but also the life to come. Solomon takes our mind from the temporal things of this life to the eternal things of this life in verses 14 and 15. Here's the truth that I want to highlight this morning in this. What you do with your life matters to God. And what Jesus did with his life matters to you. Jesus gave up his life so that yours would have meaning. Yours could have purpose. And so that you could enjoy this life and the life that's to come. So I think what Ecclesiastes is saying so far can be boiled down to this. Everything is meaningless if you don't have Jesus. But if you do have Jesus, everything in life has meaning. It's bursting with meaning. The beautiful sunset, the joy of competitive sports, uh, the incredible taste of the perfectly cooked barbecue ribs, the thrill of bringing a child into the world, and millions and millions of other human experiences can be rich with meaning when we experience them rightly. How do we experience them rightly? In the context of a relationship with Jesus Christ. See, without Christ, those things that I mentioned and the millions of others, they do bring some amount of pleasure. But that pleasure eventually fades, and with it, so does our hope. 
until we cling, reach out and cling to the next thing that we think is going to bring us purpose and hope. But with Christ, even when the temporal pleasures of this life, they start to fade, our hope doesn't fade because Jesus' life and his death and his resurrection, they still matter in those moments and they will forever. So God wants us to enjoy this life, but not to put our hope in it, not to put all of our trust in, in the things that happen here. He knows that there is no lasting happiness without him. And so he wants us to learn that. So no matter what season you're in right now in your life, I want you to know that God has not abandoned you. God is also not wasting one second of your time here on earth under the sun. He's weaving each part, each thread, no matter how small, no matter how painful or frayed it may seem. He's weaving it all into the whole tapestry that is your life. Corey Ten Boom, who was a... Um, she was helping Jews during the Nazi invasion, and she was uh, helping hide them. She herself, along with her sister, were actually sent to a couple different concentration camps for doing that. And amazingly, she understood and believed what we've been talking about here, about God. Despite her imprisonment and separation from family, and even despite the death of her beloved sister Betsy, she still understood this idea of God weaving the tapestry of her life. She really believed that God makes everything beautiful in its time. She's known for quoting a beautiful poem that was actually written by a man named Grant Tuller, and it's called The Weaver. And I want to end our time together this morning with this poem. It's called The Weaver. My life is but a weaving between my God and me. I cannot choose the colors he weaveth steadily. Oft times he weaveth sorrow. And I in foolish pride forget he sees the upper and I the underside. Not till the loom is silent and the shuttles cease to fly will God unroll the canvas and reveal the reason why. The dark threads are as needful in the weaver's skillful hand as the threads of gold and silver in the pattern he has planned. He knows, he loves, he cares. Nothing this truth condemn. He gives the very best to those who leave the choice to him. Let's pray this morning together. Father, help our unbelief. We so often view our difficult seasons so wrongly. We, would you pour out your grace and remind us that even though we're not capable of seeing the whole picture all at once, that we can still trust you? Lord, thank you for the different seasons of life and that you walk with us through each one of them. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that our lives have meaning because he laid down his life and then rose again for us. Thank you that he willingly paid the debt that none of us could so that we could be reconciled back to you. Lord, help us to live our lives with purpose and to enjoy the gifts that you give as we enjoy you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.